to the book of Isaiah, we return this morning, the 40th chapter, to which I invite your attention with me now, Isaiah chapter 40. As you're turning there, uh, let me remind you that we are coming to a major turning point in Isaiah's uh, prophecy this morning. We've uh, recently concluded a year of sermons in what is sometimes considered to be the, the first half of Isaiah, and uh, those of you who have persevered through it uh, can certainly attest to the fact that Isaiah has had a lot of difficult things to say. And there's been plenty of encouragement, of course, along the way, but the fact is we have heard much from Isaiah by way of judgment and the threats of judgments coming upon the people unless they repent. Isaiah's ministry to this point has been largely a ministry of judgment, and as you know, they did not repent. Not anyway in the thoroughgoing way that uh, Isaiah was calling upon them to repent in the way that would avert the judgment of God upon them. God's judgment, therefore, would fall, and it most certainly did. Well, now we begin at chapter 40, Isaiah's ministry of judgment Uh, gives way to a ministry of comfort. There will be some uh, judgment along the way, just as there was comfort in the last half of the book. But now we turn to a much happier message that meets us now, particularly at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, this ministry of, of comfort. There will be deliverance. Now, to understand what is Happening here, you need to understand Isaiah's message, beginning in chapter 40, is actually preached for the sake of a generation of God's people who had yet, in Isaiah's day, had yet to be born. Okay, So he is preaching here to the future generations. It's for the children and the grandchildren of the generation he has called to repentance, but who would not. Judah would be carried off into exile under the Babylonians. Isaiah himself, you remember, prophesied as much to King Hezekiah. We saw that just last week in chapter 39. Hezekiah's sons would be carried off into captivity, not by the Assyrians who tormented Hezekiah in his day, but by the next great empire, Babylon. It would be a terrible day for Jerusalem, For God's people, as they felt on their backs the heat of the flames burning Jerusalem to the ground while they were being led in chains to Babylon and Babylonian captivity. By the waters of Babylon, the psalmist writes in Psalm 137, they would sit down and weep as they remembered Zion, Jerusalem, their homeland, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah designed these words just for them so that they would be encouraged in Babylon. Though they were captive to their Babylonian tormentors, they would be delivered. And so have, and so will you be delivered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Come to us now, we pray, in thy word, and speak to us. Open our ears and our hearts to receive your truth and to be comforted as your people were comforted long ago because you are our great Redeemer, our Deliverer. 
Speak peace to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. When it seemed that they couldn't hang on any more, when their Babylonian captors were taunting them to sing songs of Zion, have mirth when their hearts were filled with grief and sadness and longing. For their homeland, Isaiah's words must have been the lifesaver to which they clung. Deliverance would come. They had to believe it. Hope was their only comfort, but it took faith to believe it. They had to cling by faith to the promise of God, perceiving it with the eyes of their souls alone. This was not the first time that God's people found themselves in this place. In Egypt, too, many generations before this, the people of God had to look to their covenant-keeping God in faith and trust for comfort and for hope of deliverance. And again, in the future, before the incarnation of the Son of God in the, in the flesh as Jesus the Christ, God's people would find themselves, the remnant anyway, who are still looking for the Christ to come, I say they would find themselves clinging to the hope of comfort. 
And still God's people cling to the promise of comfort to come. Not that we're in Babylonian captivity, mind you. Though many persecuted Christians in other parts of the world, for whom we often pray, did even this morning, must sometimes feel that way. But the final deliverance, the full consummation of what Jesus accomplished on the cross has yet to take place. Still today, it seems like we're still held captive, doesn't it? To our own sin. Still today, we wait for the full and complete deliverance from our fallen condition that we grieve and hate, from all that we hate and long to be released from, finally and completely. So the passage here, written for the comfort of our spiritual ancestors in Babylon, still rings true for us today. And the promises remain just as certain as ever they were. The next several chapters, some scholars say the next 15 chapters in particular, were written to lend comfort to the captives. But in the verses we've just read, uh, have been described as the overture of of a great piece of music. uh, In which all of the themes of the music yet to come are heard in summary and introductory form. So I don't mind too much, taking the rest of this morning to cover several points, each of them only briefly, because I know that they have yet to be developed in the chapters ahead. All of them, all of them turn our eyes in the direction that Isaiah has been working very hard to turn them all along, to the only true, the only lasting source of real hope and comfort that there is to be found, to God. We'll consider his people, his forgiveness, his deliverance, his glory, his word. First, consider his people, by which I don't mean so much that we should take our eyes off of God now and place them on his people or ourselves, certainly. What I mean here is a rebellious people a people reaping the very things that they have sown, the captivity that they've brought upon themselves. You need only think back over what we've heard in Isaiah, these messages of rebuke and warning that Isaiah faithfully proclaimed to them. They were a disobedient people. They were a rebellious people. They broke God's law at every turn. They hated God. They hated others. They practiced injustice. They were idolatrous. They were immoral. And when trouble came, they looked not to God, but to the nations, to men, and then drowned their sorrows in bacchanalian drinking parties. When God extended his arms to them and sent his word to them, they refused it and demanded that Isaiah preach soft things to them. Now they were getting what they deserved. And from God's perspective, we wouldn't be surprised in the least to hear the Almighty say, good riddance. But even here, even as they suffered their just deserts, 
Verse 1, God calls them my people. That is amazing, isn't it? Amazing that God should still claim ownership. No, more than that, that he should love them with this sort of kind and tender tone and call them my people. He still identifies with them despite their rebellion. Now, lest you should miss the point here, lest you should fail to grasp the significance of this, let me be quite direct with you. God still does the same thing today, and it is no less amazing, my brothers and sisters, nay, it is even more amazing because he does the same for you and for me. The fact is no one in this room in the hearing of my voice is any better one ounce better than they were you and i have trampled all over god's law this week even this day if we really were reaping right now what we have sown. I'll perish the thought. When we confess in this house of worship that we are wretched sinners, that's not some sort of window dressing we're hanging on our prayers. It's not some sort of hyperbole on our part. We are wretched sinners. But God still calls you his. He still looks at us and says, my people. How is that? How can he do such a thing? It is second because of his forgiveness. Start with me again in verse 1. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, she was disciplined, wasn't she, for her sins. And the chastisement has been a heavy one. Double, Isaiah proclaims on God's behalf. The rod has fallen with a double sting on their backs. But the punishment, the real punishment for her sin, has not fallen on her. It's fallen on someone else. Isaiah will go into more detail later about that. But for now, it's enough to hear in verse 2 that her iniquity is pardoned. I fear that we've heard this so often that we've grown somewhat cold to this idea, haven't we? Our sins have been forgiven. Our iniquities have been pardoned. Perhaps it's because we've heard it so often that we can never hear it too much. Maybe it's because we haven't really reckoned lately with how truly terrible 
our sins are. And how much worse the consequence of them, the wrath and the punishment of God. We came a little bit closer during the adult Sunday school class this morning as we considered the horrors, the unspeakable forsakenness of the cross. But let a man or a woman come face to face with the blackness of his or her crimes, high crimes against God. Let any of us capture even a small sense of the magnitude of our offenses against God and forgiveness. God's pardon will be to that man or woman, that boy or girl, the amazing thing that we say and that we sing than it is. And with it, third, his deliverance. By pardoning our sin, he delivers us from a bondage far worse than captivity to some other a nation. And do you remember, Christians, those of you who were delivered from this burden later in your lives, what it was like to have your sins lifted from your shoulders? Can you remember the, the day, maybe, when like Bunyan's character, you came uh, to the cross and there the cords of that burden were snapped off of your shoulders. It rolled and into the gaping mouth of the grave. Whether you have had such an experience or have simply trusted in the Lord from your mother's breast, either way you have been delivered from a captivity in which Others all around you, people into whom you run every day at work and at the store and on the street remain fast bound today. In their Babylonian captivity, the psalmist says they had no songs of joy on their lips. But oh, the ecstasy. You just imagine it as they return to the promised land, those days that we saw in our time in Ezra and Nehemiah years ago. They shuffled to the land of Babylon, but they skipped back under Persia's blessing by the hand of God. It was a dangerous journey, you might remember, from Persia back to the promised land, so dangerous, in fact, that some of them simply didn't return. They preferred to stay behind, but... Those that did return came home to Jerusalem under divine protection, with a divine escort. How much could be said about that, but I want simply to draw your attention to one verse, and that's verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He is a king. The previous verse talks about that. He is a king. His mighty arm has done this. His reward, his recompense goes before him. But he is a shepherd king. He, he led them the same way he leads you today. Like a shepherd scooping his lambs up into his arms and holding them to his chest. I want you to notice even more narrowly one line in particular. 
you mothers of little children, listen closely. He leads, gently leads those that are with young. I am deeply indebted to one young mother who years ago pointed that verse out to me. I had not noticed it before. It meant so much to her, and I've not forgotten the tenacious faith with which she held to this verse. You young mothers with little children must feel some days like you are held captive. And the sense of your own sin and your own shortcomings is only exacerbated by a sense of overwhelming responsibility for the raising of children, for for some of you a whole bevy of them, all at once. You feel some days like such a failure. Because with so many depending on you, not to mention your own personal afflictions and trials, your own weakness is magnified. Some of you fathers of young ones feel the same way. And let this image be a soothing balm to your hearts and minds gently. Oh, so gently. Your shepherd leads, especially you. His eye is particularly set on his nursing ewes and his flock. And he has turned in tenderness toward you. He will not let you undergo any more than you can bear. But that is help is with you. And all of this redounds forth to his glory. That too will be something of a major theme in the second part of Isaiah's prophecy, so we don't have to say too much more this morning than to point out in verse 5 that the saving work of God, delivering his people, shepherding his flock, comes to this. Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord is made manifest every time he delivers his people. It was revealed when he took his flock out of Egypt in cloud and in fire and on Mount Sinai. God's glory was revealed in returning his captives from Babylon to the promised land. God's glory was even revealed, even if in a sort of ironically hidden way, at the cross of Calvary. His glory was displayed as he delivered his people from their sin. Even us in God's glory will be seen. Oh my, will it be seen when he comes to judge the living and the dead on the great day of judgment to come on which and, and after which his people, those whom he rescued from Egypt and from Babylon and from sin and from Satan, will see it all together 
And we will rub shoulders that day with these who were brought out of their bondage in Babylon. We will see the glory of God. All together we will behold it. How certain is this, dear flock? I mean, how sure can we be that deliverance is finally and fully going to come? How could they know for certain in Babylon in the 6th century BC that deliverance would come? How may we know so in the 21st century? Simply this, fifth, his word. Verse 6. All flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. That includes Babylonians, by the way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Men fail us. They all do. Hezekiah, in the last chapter, is a perfect example. Even great men, even godly, exemplary men, heroes of the Christian faith, fail us. Even if only by dying, by going the way of all flesh, they fail us. Like grass and flowers, they die. A few days ago, our family gathered around the breakfast table to discover that one of the flowers that I had bought for Debbie a couple of weeks ago, suddenly decided to drop all of its petals all at once. And there they were in a small heap on the table overnight. So go the best of men. So goes everything. All of it. Constantly things are changing. But God never does. His word stands forever, and in that word, God has promised to bring to completion what he has started, what he has begun in you, the good work he has begun with you in Christ Jesus, he will bring to completion. And nothing, and no one, can change that. You will finally be delivered from this body of death you will from your sin and from all that so grieves you and seems to hold on to you with such a grasp right now he already has you know already he's conquered it all just like the babylonians were as good as conquered because god had set a day when when persia would rise to take command only more so because he has has really and fully already conquered all of his enemies and yours on the cross. And as sure as God's word stands, so you will find, sooner than you can even imagine, that the deliverance he has accomplished for you will be fully your experience too. You will know it not only by faith, you will know it by sight, by the senses. It will be palpable to you. This was their comfort in Babylon, and this remains our comfort still today, that despite all that we have been, despite all that we have done, we're still called His people. We have his forgiveness. We have his deliverance. 
He's doing it all for the singular purpose of his own glory. And it is all as certain as God's word, his inviolable, his everlasting word. Having believed this then, Christians, there's but one thing left to do with all of this, isn't there? What is it? It is to proclaim it. It is to tell others about it gladly and and without fear. That's exactly what John the Baptist did, you remember. In fact, the gospel writers say that John fulfilled this very prophecy, that he was the voice that cried, prepare the way of the Lord. But it's not just John the Baptist, and it's not just the church's ministers, the preachers, It is the whole church that is called to this, verse 9. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The news, this, this news of our redemption, of our deliverance and our forgiveness and God's glory and the, the trustworthiness of his word and the privilege of being as called his people, all of this is simply too good to keep to ourselves. There's so many all around us still fast bound in nature's night and the darkness of their sin whom the Lord intends to set free from their iniquity. You must tell them, Christians. You must make it known to them. You see them. You talk to them. Proclaim to them freedom for the captives. Lift up, lift it up, as Isaiah says. Don't be afraid. Of this. this has got to be our biggest hindrance, isn't it, about bringing this to the world? Dr. Kennedy, D. James Kennedy, used to say that he did not tell people the gospel. He did not proclaim the good news because he had a particular impediment that he suffered. He said it was a, a yellow stripe that began in the middle of the back of his neck and ran all the way down his back. But there's no reason to fear. Brothers and sisters, nothing to be afraid of when you're proclaiming the good news. It is, after all, just that good news, particularly to those who are being saved. The greatest way to enjoy this comfort, this news of your own place among the people of God, of his deliverance, of his forgiveness, of his glory, and so on. I say the greatest way to enjoy that comfort is to see others coming into it as well. That makes our joy complete to the glory of God. It all comes down to this, really. And if you've heard it once in this series of of Isaiah, you've heard it a thousand times. And we'll continue to hear it because Isaiah will continue to preach it. It's all a matter of trust. It's all a matter of trust. In whom do you trust? Trust in God, my friends, and in him alone, and you will be most truly 
comforted. For you will be saved. Amen.